1: Fox News Radio Studios in New York City. Fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade.
2: Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. 408 7669 So glad you're here. I hope you had a fantastic weekend. Last weekend of the summer, unofficially, Charlie Hurd is in studio. If you're watching on Fox Nation, you see him. And Senator Joni Ernst at the bottom of the hour. Charlie could have been a senator, but he did not want to run. He gets paid more to be in TV and to write for a living. Uh, Charlie, say hello so everyone knows I'm not lying, that you I'm are really, here. I'm really here. Right. So let's get to the big three.
1: Now with the stories you need to know,
3: it's Brian's Big Three.
2: Number three. Most economists have looked at
4: it said it's not going to increase inflation.
3: Well, if that's what they're thinking, most economists are, are wrong. You don't slow the economy down by forgiving debt and giving people another $24 billion to spend.
2: Forgiveness fallout. It's a blatant effort to buy votes, in my view. Joe forgives student loans, now leaving those... Who paid theirs exasperated. Americans who didn't take one flummoxed or didn't go to college scream foul. We will present all sides. Number two. What I read uh, of the unredacted
4: material makes a strong case against a search warrant. There was no urgency. If they wanted a search warrant, if it was so urgent, they could have gotten it five
2: months ago. Mar-a-Lago madness judges courts legal Teams and documents. The drama intensifies as the FBI raid scrambles to show it was all justified. It's the story that's still swamping just about everything else.
5: Number
0: one. The pollsters do this for the Senate races every cycle. In August, they predict somehow Republicans are going to lose all these races. This is their dying gasp to try to try to make the Senate in play.
2: Momentum lost That's the narrative from the mass media who are flat out rooting for a block on the assumed red wave. We will examine the reality and the numbers as the midterm push starts in earnest. So, that's where we'll go. I was just shocked. First off, we should be, on the Sunday shows, they should have been talking about Afghanistan. I mean, there's no justification to put a rundown together and not say one year since the biggest disaster in American military history and it was all self-inflicted
6: yeah entirely and um and and also reveals themselves uh, n- not only to not be serious but also to be willing to absolutely do anything that, that they have to to prop up this administration there is there is no way you this is the biggest story um and uh you know it's it's uh you know you, you can't and i guess the, the at the end of the day the reason that they don't do it is because there's no way. To, there's no way to spin it.
2: The you video can't. of That's... Afghans running after a jumbo jet, yeah. hoping to get on, grabbing onto a, a a wing and falling to their death or jumping in the engine. And then and then the
6: administration's effort to try to blame the previous administration, which
2: is, of course,
6: absurd. But uh, but and of course, let's also not forget Joe Biden is for 20 years for, for longer than that, has been the reigning expert in Washington on foreign policy. And the, this is the that, – that, that right there is the sum total of his expertise in Washington as a foreign policy Because he's had
2: the power. He just
6: hasn't yeah. had the expertise. Right. Oh, he's yeah, exactly. And he's been wrong about everything, every single one of his foreign policy proposals over the – remember when he wanted to break Iraq up into three – Parts he didn't want to go after Osama bin Laden. The list goes on and on, where uh, of examples where he was completely wrong about about these things. But in Washington, you know, you're you become an expert because
2: you're wrong about everything. So Charlie, uh, let's segue back to momentum lost. One thing is clear: the Dobbs decision Roe v. Wade did change things, sure, a little bit, especially sure. with governor's races because because the power is in the states. So the re- the Denver Republican message, tell me if you back me on this, seems to be this. I'm pro-life, but uh, I'm not going to for have zero abortions. They are for reasonable, something reasonable within there. That seems to be the message.
6: Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, uh, I think that uh, uh, maybe to refine it a little bit, a smarter message is, look, uh, you know, I'm pro-life, but – I understand that my neighbors feel differently about this, and the only way to arrive at a reasonable just conclusion uh, solution for this is to put it up to state legislatures and and I think that's a reason and, 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 that, and that's where I am on it you know I, I think that uh, you know the the, the, injust, the great injustice here was that the Supreme Court took this issue this position this issue away from voters for fifty years yeah. And allowing voters to tailor how they see this issue and the way they want it—it's a very important issue. No, no sensible person doubts that it's a moral issue and that it's an important moral issue. And having that, the, having that important moral issue mm-hmm. decided by legislatures and your neighbors—I, you know, you're, you're you may not be happy with the, the the final solution, but it's better than being having an edict from. Nine unelected dudes, mostly dudes at the time, anyway, um, or all dudes at the time. Um, you know, uh, it's better. It's better than that. We we can live. You know, <laughs> democracy is is messy. You have to accept things that you don't like, but that's okay. We don't live in a autocracy run by
2: right robed. Do you remember that, um, that great unifier, President Biden? You know, don't, hate, don't hate the, uh, the Brandon, person because they're in a different party. Yeah. So yeah. I want you to listen to. Brandon, the Evidently, this, this was not. Maybe you have different sources. This was not in the teleprompter. <laughs> His use of the word fascists. Yeah. Cut to.
7: So how extreme are these MAGA Republicans? Just take a look what happened since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In red states after red states. There's a race to pass the most restrictive abortion limitations imaginable, even without exception for rape or incest. But these MAGA Republicans won't stop there. They want a national ban. They want to pass a legislative national ban in the Congress. If the MAGA Republicans win control of the Congress, it won't matter where you live. Women won't have the right to choose anywhere.
2: So, not true. Maga Republicans right. they evidently this been battle tested it 's been uh, if you want in a the mall, they ask you to sit down in front of a round table and and do uh, do a, a bit of a test about how that resonates
6: yeah it's interesting. Um, you know he talks about how uh, on the national level, Republicans want to do this. Well, what about Democrats? Democrats have had umpteen opportunities to tailor in, in, in federal immigration regulations that would have been sensible and that would have been uh, more appealing to, to to more people. And they failed to do it as well. But no, he he, he is, um, you know, and, and he forgets that whether he likes those people or not, those 65, 70 million people in this country or not, he still works for them. And he doesn't act like it when he says things like this. And then when he goes even further and starts talking about calling them fascists or semi-fascists, these are the people you work for, whether you like them or not. Yeah, and and there's this. Do you it, really it, think he believes that? I, I don't think he believes anything. He, I, I, I really don't. I,
2: we've every people voted for Donald Trump. Is he willing to call them all? I no. Semi fascists. Well, well, he did, and he
6: does, and I think that he'll. But but he'll say anything. This is the story of the guy's career. He's always said whatever he has to say. I I remember covering him for years in Congress. If you needed a quote for a story, you'd go to Joe Biden. You could get him to say anything. And everybody sort of rolled their eyes when the guy walked in the room because he he would literally say anything.
2: Including President Obama, we heard, uh, for the last eight years. Yeah,
6: and and think about why did President Obama pick him? President Obama wanted a sort of a a, a harmless, old, white-haired, white dude to sort of
2: work the Senate to, and get things passed and,
6: and, and to temper the very newness and novelty of what a lot of uh, President Obama we, or then Senator Obama was bringing to the table. And, and, and kn- so they wanted that that sort of that, that balance. Right. And, 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 you,
2: got- and you know what passed has nothing to do with him. That bipartisan infrastructure legislation, whatever you think of it, that passed in the Senate. He almost blew it up. Yeah. And then when you had the chips bill, that was originally a, a Republican idea. But that passed in the Senate. He almost blew it up. And then you had the gun legislation, which I think that uh, Senator Cornyn uh, came in and said he has some reasonable things that he put into there. Some Republicans didn't like it, but it had nothing to do with Joe Biden. In fact, Joe Biden was in the middle of putting down Republicans saying they're pro-gun, they want to shoot you. When this got work behind the scenes, you know, the, the
6: idea that somehow Joe Biden is some master negotiator in the Senate, that is the most laughable thing. Again, if you, you know, throughout his career, people w- literally senators roll their eyes when the guy would walk in the room when, you know, you'd be in, in you know, Judiciary Committee hearings or foreign relations hearings. The guy would walk in the room and it was like, oh, gosh, here comes Joe. And right. he's going to say whatever. He's going to say stupid stuff. He wants to hear him talk.
2: In the past, this is the difference. He's angry now. Yeah, he is. was that about? He finally got the job he wanted since the 80s, and he's always angry. He's always angry, and his his answers to reporters are never insightful or interesting. Uh, here's, so he says this, and people are noticing, wow, is that a unifier? And George Stephanopoulos, and I notice um, uh, the, Meet the Press, uh, Chuck Todd said the same thing. Is this really smart? Peter Alexander on NBC. I thought it was interesting. He said this. Cut three.
8: What's interesting about this when he, as you described, used the word semi-fascism to describe the MAGA philosophy this week? Let's go back to March when he was in Poland. He said of Vladimir Putin that he couldn't stay in power, and that became controversial. The White House. You know, backpedaled on that and mm-hmm. walked that back. There's no backpedaling on this. It's clear that there's a more aggressive strategy. We talked about the way that they were handling the debate over student loans. You think he actually soft pedaled it? Do you think someone said you should say fascism and he said I'm going to say? <laughs> <I'm gonna> say <laughs> Am I? Fascism? When I spoke to AIDS, this wasn't a this wasn't a teleprompter yeah. speech. This is what he's been thinking. They right. say he said it out loud. This was done not on camera. But it did, it fires up Democrats. It juices up the base because they want to see him be more aggressive on that. But it also does you know it does become problematic because. You know, this is Here's- a guy who said he wanted to be a unified. Here's-
2: so when NBC reporter says it's problematic because of that, yeah. other people want to see him be tough, can you just be a leader? Yeah, exactly. okay, whatever happened to leading or and, and to be actually
6: serious about something and actually talk about stuff that you believe in and that, that, that is important to people. But this is the problem with a guy that has been in Washington for 50 years. He's been running his mouth the entire time. And but but you get to write fake checks when you're in Congress because nobody's really paying attention to you, especially if you're Joe Biden. And then suddenly you become president and every check you write has to be cashed. And he says this stuff, and people are actually listening and taking him seriously, and they write it down, and they're like, oh, my gosh, you just called half the country fascist.
2: I want to hear – I want you to – I want to get your take on what Bill Maher said on Friday, so I'm going to take a break now. My last thing for you is I do believe he thinks he's running again.
0: Oh yeah, Judging by that?
2: what he was saying last yeah. week, there's no doubt that he thinks he's running again. I don't know how many other people on the left, or will they let him run unopposed? I'm sorry,
6: I, and I, I hate to be harsh about it, but it, you know the guy's delusional, and he says things that are unconnected to reality. At what point is he suddenly going to have this moment of clarity? It's 45%
2: approval rating, according to according to the NBC poll. 45% approval rating.
6: Okay, that's. But again, you he has to have the moment of clarity to decide not to run again. Where is the clarity? I see no clarity unless yeah. there's something happens around him where his wife or his family I mean of course I think or, his wife or Barack Obama <laughs> or uh, but even then i don't i don't know that he's listening i guess i mean but but why did these people let him run in the first place they had no this choice. is not this didn't happen overnight exactly they had no choice and 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 that, but that is my exactly my point that goes back to the original problem the problem that they had in 2020 that got him nominated they st- democrats still have there's nobody else who are they going to go with bernie
2: I mean, I, I, think, I think they'd be better off going with Bernie. Bernie has the highest Q rating among Democrats. Right. Uh, that's when a story came out today. Listen, uh, I got to get Charlie to weigh in on what Bill Moore said to Rob Reiner. A conversation you wouldn't think I'd care about, but I think you will. Don't move.
1: Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
9: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot...
1: He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
11: It's a little bit of a thorny question, because once you go down this road, this is sort of where we are in this country. The other side is so evil, anything is justified in preventing them from taking office. Is it? No. You know what's not justified? Using armed violence to try to kill people in the Capitol. That's not justified. Answer this question. Well, it is was it appropriate? The question is: Was, was it press- appropriate to bury the Hunter Biden? You're talking about the press doing the, that. He's saying that's what they did, and that is what they did. They buried the Hunter Biden story before the election because they were like, "We can't risk having the election thrown to Trump." We'll tell them after the well, election.
12: And we know for a fact that that's
11: what they did. Of
2: course,
12: you no, don't but follow I mean this. Saying you gotta-
11: know for a fact that that's what they did. Do. I don't know what they did. I know because you only watch MSNBC. No, that's not
2: true. <laughs> he said he watches Fox. Uh, that is <laughs> yes. Rob Reiner. But can you Such believe what uh, Charlie Hurt is here? Charlie, do you believe they're having this conversation? And yeah. um, Bill Maher's 100% right, even though he doesn't like Trump. He's like, there's, there's, it's getting scary for him to see that this happened. Yeah, And it's scary for any clear-thinking person to see that this happened, that they buried the story. Then Mark Zuckerberg says what he said to Joe Rogan, on yeah. which aired on Thursday.
6: Yeah. No, it's, it's weird because you know some, the media has lost so much credibility, especially among people like us who follow the stuff closely and uh, people who follow all these stories that we care about, and they're very important stories. But you know the thing to remember is the media is still incredibly powerful, and you have a guy like Rob Reiner who has access to all the information that he could possibly want. Yes, I don't know that. He's, of course you know that. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, no, no. York, I, the Washington Post whether in New York does, Times came out
2: and said it was true.
6: Whether he does or not, I don't know. There are, But I do know there are still people who read the Washington Post and the New York Times every single day. And those people – and they still believe everything they read in those newspapers. And those people have been lied to, purposefully lied to with weaponized stories for years. I, I, I've I've read the New York Times my entire adult life up until about – you know, five years ago, I, I canceled my subscription. I, I, if somebody sends me a story from one of those publications, I delete it. I do not read it. I don't read it for defensively. I don't read it at all because y- you you no longer know what's made up. Yeah, I read up it defensively. Wh- okay, I, and I get that. Yeah. But but I just I don't I, at this point I I, I sort of. You know, you at some point you just sort of jump over no, the bubble you. and you're like, I'm not going to fill my brain with this pollution because I not only it's one thing, you know, we're you and I have spent all of our time in the media. So we are pretty sophisticated about uh, sussing out what's fake or what's real and what's false and, and you know, or what's misleading or whatever. But there comes a point where you realize they're intentionally doing it. This is weaponized propaganda and then it gets a whole lot harder for you and me to use our senses. I'll to give you say- an example
2: of the subtle way they do it. They're writing this story about Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. And saying there's a distrust among the right of the FBI, but never saying in context why. Right. Because of the Mueller report, because right. of the misinformation, because of James Comey, what he did, because of the, uh, Peter Strzok getting a network contract when he was caught lying and biased, and he's still lying on other networks. People feel that at the very least— List the th- reasons why right. the Republicans are distrustful. Right.
6: Or the other thing that, that drives me crazy, and Rob Reiner just said it, talked about the armed insurrection. Armed? Armed with what? Flagpoles? Armed right. with what? OK, let's say that there were people in the audience, in that crowd, that were actually armed with weapons. Was a single one of those weapons used? no. The, the, this, Just to it, kill
2: Ashley Babbitt was the Secret Service. Right, but but they want to say armed because they want to ratchet it up and they want to color right. the coverage of it. Absolutely. And and lastly, Mark Zuckerberg came out. So Rob Ronner should know if he's listening. Uh, came out and said right. the FBI came to me and said we got to suppress this story. That's, that, that's before the, most the election. Ter- the okay? most terrifying story. Absolutely. Today. And and he said it with a straight face, almost to get it out of the way. And then I think, he told us no, he exactly. Told us I
6: think he was trying to get it out of the way. That's why.
2: Thanks, Joey.
1: Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
4: The problem was not with Reinhardt, it was with the attorney general, who didn't follow his own guidelines. There should never have been a search warrant requested here. There was a subpoena issued, and what I read, and I read it all, uh, of the unredacted material makes a strong case against a search warrant. There was no urgency. If they wanted a search warrant, if it was so urgent, they could have gotten it five months ago. And even when they got the search warrant, they waited two days. There was no justification for a search warrant. So if you want to talk about who's to blame here, it's not Reinhardt. It's the attorney general of the United States.
2: So interesting, Alan Dershowitz. So I'm reading The Washington Post today. I know Charlie Hurt's going to get mad at me for saying that. And I just wanted to find like a lot of what they do is they have these unbelievably resources to get you places around the world in detail. So he said that what they found out, because everybody wants to talk to them, is that they were having a war with the archives, National Archives. So they're going back and forth when they were in the White House. They were not getting along. And then they said the word is they made the extraordinary decision to get the FBI involved, to get the department, excuse me, to get the Department of Justice involved. And that would result in this raid. So they got their 15 boxes. In the 15 boxes, they saw important stuff that also had mixed in with unimportant stuff like newspaper clippings. And they said, we need the rest of the stuff back. And then we know the stuff about April and May and the subpoena. And he goes, "Okay, come over, check it out, put a lock on it, whatever you want to do. Next thing you know, it ends up in a raid. And everyone thinks, what are you talking about? Trump's negotiating to give it back, whether he should have taken it. Go ahead, debate it. But I have never been president and I've never been told I got 48 hours to leave because he never thought he was going to lose regardless. You know how I feel about January 6th. Never should have happened. The president, if he acted congenial and said, Mr. uh, President Biden, go take a tour of the Oval Office, he would have about 58% approval rating right now, and people would be begging for him to run again. It's pretty clear to me that I'm right. So there's got to be a process from here on in, where as you leave in the final two weeks, and it's going to be Joe Biden, the National Archives comes in, and you go with some key aides, chief of staff, whoever, and you give them, and they go through every piece of paper, they go through every box, they go over the time period. Yeah, can keep it, cannot keep it, and there'd be a there'd be a third party to decide who's right, and just remove any controversy because evidently there's always controversy with uh, you know, you hear about uh, you hear about uh, Clinton and you hear about Nixon and you hear about President Obama, and evidently there was no controversy. But he's got 33 million pages from his uh, from his administration. I guess on loan until his library's done, and here we are, six years later, it's not even done. Let's just remove all that. So Trump makes himself open to, because he's uh, brash, and he's confident, and he's defiant, and he says, I want this papers to write my own book or do whatever. You just heard Charlie bring up Crossfire Hurricane. Want some proof of all this stuff existing? That could be it. But now it's the number one story and it shouldn't be. The number one story should be inflation. The number two story should be crime. The number three story should be uh, what they're doing to our, our energy independence. Of course, uh, if you the subset of that is gas, diesel. The fact that baby formula is still an issue, that supply chain still matters. The president's got 45% approval rating because we're not talking about his job. And the, we're talking about the Mar-a-Lago uh, rate. Way too much. And it's interesting. I'm, you know, I can't get me to duck out of it with Marco Rubio on One Nation on Saturday when the redacted affidavit is out and has stuff in there. It's got to be a story. So the President of the United States wants to label Trump supporters, MAGA supporters. I like conservatives. I just don't like MAGA supporters. Katie Pavlich sees a bigger story in this, in using the term semi-fascist. She was on the big show, big Sunday show, Cut eight.
0: This isn't
3: just simply an insult. This is a strategy by President Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. When they use the term semi-fascist or fascist, they're doing that so that they can justify any means necessary to squash their political opponents, even if that means using the FBI to go after them, the Department of Justice, the IRS, which we've seen in the past when Democrats are in charge going after their political opponents.
2: Could this be a strategy? Clearly, it's a strategy. I mean, bringing up out of wearing MAGA. Okay, make America great again. The president said, fantastic. I love it. And and you break it down. who, Who is against it? So bottom line is I do think Democrats do have a degree of momentum. But not the degree in which it's being portrayed on every single show, on every single hour. They're trying to make it happen. They're trying to almost gin up by saying momentum's lost for Republicans. And I think they have to strategize their way out of it. But I think they're real in a good spot, simply in the president's job performance and crime in this country. Rick Klein broke down his ABC political director. He's on here a lot. He breaks down how it's still folly to think Democrats can hold the House. Cut nine.
8: The math here is just so stark, George, even with that victory in the special election, Republicans still need to flip only five Democratic seats this fall. Most of the battleground continues to be Democratic controlled seats. But what has changed, uh, George, even if most Democrats still don't believe that they will control the House, some are starting to think that they might be able to minimize the losses to take some marginal seats. Off the table, given some of the other dynamics at play right now, and their hope at this point is that even if the Republicans do end up controlling the House, it might be a very narrow majority.
2: Right, and narrow still gives them control of the House to a degree, control the purse strings and get some investigations going, and I'm not, that's not the only reason, but to, to do it. But the most thing the president, uh, the former president, has to do is start pouring money to Dr. Oz, start pouring money to Herschel Walker, start pouring money money to J.D. Vance, to Adam Laxalt out in Nevada, to Mastriano out in Pennsylvania, uh, to see Blake Masters in Arizona because he put him there. And there was a lot of the good candidates there. And the president, too, it would be his best interest in having these supporters, financing these supporters if he is to get the White House back, to know that these guys owe their their senatorial seat to him but you can't stop now i know the president does like to spend money but doesn't have a choice a lot of people gave him the money thinking he would spend it on those guys all right you listen to the brian kilmeade show when we come back Senator joni Ernst George is from iowa one year since the anniversary of the afghanistan disaster uh, we will not forget to bring this up brian kilmeade show
1: expanding your knowledge base it's the brian kilmeade show From his mouth to your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade.
8: President Biden says he has no regrets about what he did in Afghanistan. He's a fool if he really believes that. I have a lot of regrets about what he did. I regret the fact that we left thousands of our allies behind who bravely fought along our side. I regret the fact that all the women that kind of believed in us have been turned back over to the Taliban. I regret the fact that the Afghanistan Uh, is going to become another breeding ground for terrorism, and most likely another 9-11 will emanate there, going through a broken southern border.
2: That was how I said Lindsey Graham can barely hide his anger towards the administration wanting to forget about what happened a year ago. You know, I found out the report that was written up uh, by defense has never even been read by the president. It got as far as the chief of staff. He does not want to know what went wrong because he knows. He knows planes were leaving empty. He knows that he could have had the city. Instead, he kept the airport, and at least 13 are dead, maybe more. 13 great Americans. Senator Joni Ernst joins us now, Armed Services Committee. Uh, Senator, what are your thoughts one year later? And are you astounded? The administration has no commemoration of the 13, almost a year since they lost their lives at Abbey Gate.
13: I am astounded, Brian. And first off, I want to say thank you so much to all of the veterans that served in the global war on terrorism over the past 20 years and for their extraordinary efforts to keep our country safe and we were safe during that 20 years Um, To the families of the 13 fallen from Abbey Gate, uh, that was the one-year anniversary on the 26th of August, Um, I am disheartened that the president did not commemorate those that lost their lives in trying to rescue our Afghan partners, Americans that were stranded. One of those young men was uh, Dagan Page. And Dagan grew up in Montgomery County, Iowa, where I'm from. I know his family extremely well. And we're all saddened by his loss and the loss of those other service members. But the president couldn't even come forward and say, thank you for your service and and that we appreciate the sacrifice that they made. It was a haphazard withdrawal. It was um, unprecedented that we would leave a country the way we did without even notifying our allies and friends that we left Americans behind, that we left the Afghans that had helped us behind. Promises made, promises broken by President Biden. Um, As Lindsey Graham stated, the women and girls in Afghanistan who had come so far in the past 20 years while the country uh, was moving in a progressive way, uh, all of their rights have been taken away. They can't leave their homes without a male member of their family. They can't go to school. They can't work. We have the Taliban colluding with al-Qaeda and other violent extremist organizations. you know, so many of these millions of Afghans are yeah. suffering because they have no food. I could go on and Sen- on. Senator, and a, couple of things, a couple of things.
2: I-, I love that when the administration goes, can you imagine if we were bogged down in Afghanistan and we had to get these resources to Ukraine? Excuse me. We probably don't have, and we would never know for sure. But I would say odds are if we showed strength in Afghanistan and we held on to Bagram, and we show that we are we're not giving up there. We probably don't uh, get a deal with uh, the Russians invading Ukraine. What do you think?
13: Well, I think you're absolutely correct. Vladimir Putin was watching how America reacted uh, with Afghanistan by pulling out not 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 even leaving a stabilizing force. Um, but think about the military equipment that was left behind in Afghanistan. You know, a lot of that could have been transferred um, to the Ukrainians before the Russian invasion. And yet we pulled out so fast, we didn't have the opportunity to reclaim that military equipment. Um, again, a haphazard withdrawal. Uh, this president should be ashamed of his actions. Um, instead, he just refuses to address it.
2: Right. Uh, so now his approval rating, according to one poll anyway, at 45% one year from the biggest debacle in American military history. And we leave everybody behind. And we also, uh, we have uh, we have veterans come out of retirement to try to get their Afghan allies out. So we'll see how that goes. We never even told NATO that we were leaving. They had to find out. We wouldn't let our guys leave the wire outside Kabul airport to go get people and bring them back. Some thankfully did. So, Senator, as we Look right now at our defense. It's impossible to see what happened over the weekend and not think it's all related. We go to pull in to refuel our Coast Guard and Solomon Islands. They now have a defense agreement with China, and they told us to, to go pound sand. We're not allowed to go there. What, what's the significance of this?
13: Well, this is significant. In a world where China is our pacing threat, we do need to push back, and we need to make sure that our alliances are intact. And this president, with his foreign policy, it's a debacle, Brian. Um, And unfortunately, they haven't paid attention around the world to the partnerships that matter. We are handing over so many countries to China and this is it's so disgraceful. You know, we do need to have relationships with other countries. And this is just one example of where this president has failed to engage other leaders around the world in a constructive manner. And so we're ceding over these opportunities to China. They're eating our lunch when it comes to yeah. um, navigation around the world.
2: You what General McMaster said about the whole operation in Afghanistan, he told Talk to me on Saturday.
4: This was a self-defeat, self-defeat based on self-delusion, right? We, you know, we created the enemy we would prefer in Afghanistan. Remember what we heard? Oh, well, the Taliban will share power. They'll put in a more benign form of Sharia. Uh, and, and there's a bold line, you know, between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Actually, we had this idea that we we're going to partner with the Taliban against al-Qaeda and other jihadist terrorists. These groups are completely intertwined. You see the hell that they're putting all Afghans through and and especially women I mean it's time to wake up and recognize that we defeated ourselves based on on a fantasy uh about about the nature of the Taliban
2: he's right isn't he
13: Yes, he is absolutely correct. General McMaster laid it out quite well. And I will go a step further in that the Biden administration is living in an alternate universe. When a priority of theirs for our military is to transition our non-tactical vehicle fleet to all electric, that's really a priority? Come on, we should be focused on making our military the most lethal fighting force on the face of the planet. And yet they're bowing to climate agendas. Um, they're you know, trying to make the world a, ut- a utopian paradise Where the Taliban are good people um, Come, You know Brian That's not yeah. ever going to happen
2: So I want to bring you to Ukraine if I can And we know now that the Russians Have taken very little land And now they're in a massive push To get more volunteers to bolster their force They've lost at least 80,000 The Ukrainians losing about 100 a day uh, So it's, it's costing both sides But the question is how pivotal is this fall and is time on whose side? Ambassador Michael McFaul, he was ambassador during the Obama years, no fan of Putin. I think he tried to kill him. No, McFaul didn't try to kill Putin the other way around. Cut 38. Mm-hmm.
11: The Ukrainians don't want it to be a years-long conflict. It costs a lot, $5 a year they're getting from the West. Uh, They'll eventually run out of resources, military, these HIMARS uh, that Admiral Severides is just talking about. That's why they want to go on the offensive in the South. The city of Kherson is what they want to take. They want to push the Russians out for the first time. Uh, With respect to the Russians, they think time's on their side, uh, and they think the longer the war goes, it'll play to their advantage. And Putin right now is focusing on trying to take Donbass. What's striking to me, Chuck, is he's been focused on trying to take Donbass for six months and still hasn't achieved that objective. That says to me that maybe Putin is wrong about time being on his side.
2: What do you think, Senator?
13: do think we should enable the Ukrainians uh, with our partner forces as well and making sure that they're getting all of the necessary munitions uh, and military equipment as possible. And we need to blow that in faster, making sure that they can push back the Russians. We should have been doing this the last several months, enabling them to soften uh, the the Russians in the Donbass and through the South, pushing them back. You know, Keep them on the move. Uh, The Russians will continue to try and advance Um, And as long as we're not empowering the Ukrainians, they're going to keep pushing. This should be a short war. We should really push the Russians heavily. And as long as the Ukrainians are willing to fight, we should be supporting them. Um, Don't think that the Russians are going to stop. They're going to keep moving forward. They're going to move into other countries in Europe that are not NATO.
2: Well, not right away because they're a mess.
13: They are a mess. They are a mess. But my great fear is that if we allow status quo, allow the, the uh, Russians to occupy Ukraine, that they will reconstitute in another five, ten years to stay on this march. But, you know,
2: yeah, we're kind of losing the of
13: Ukrainian force.
2: Senator, real quick. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, are, yep. What do you think? They say 65 percent chance the Democrats hold on to the Senate. What do you think?
13: Oh, I don't think so, Brian, I think this is liberal media, liberal pollsters that are pushing out the narrative they want to see in the fall hoping to discourage Republicans from going to the polls. Um, just like in my race, you know, the, the pollsters were saying, oh, well, Iowa's now leans Democratic, and yet I won by eight points. Um, so keep, keep the fight up uh, out there. We want to make sure Republicans are turning out in November. And I do think we still have the opportunity to take the Senate.
7: Thanks
2: so much, Senator Joni Ernst. Appreciate it.
13: Thank you, Brian.
2: Hey, uh, if you want to talk about history, red, white, and blue instead of 1619? Go to com. I am get to go on stage, talk about all my books, and most importantly, talk to you. Uh, I'll be in Albany, New York, September 8th, and then, of course, November 12th and 13th. I'll be in Tulsa and then over to Mississippi, and then I'll be December 2nd in Newark, New Jersey. Brian Kilmeade Joe.
1: the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade.
2: Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, heard around the world, and hopefully in the Ukraine and everywhere else in conflict. Uh, We're going to be joined this hour by Michael Goodwin, John Taffer from Bar Rescue. He's got an exciting announcement to make, and also he... Tackle something that we're all dealing with. If, if you've gone out to eat lately, have you asked people? And I'm sure you have. How's it going? And they tell you they can't get any help. It's still happening. And I'm talking about the most popular restaurants and the most unpopular restaurants. Ones that are great for young people, ones great for old people. It just, it just. Where are these people? They never got the college surge that they usually get in the summer. A little bit of help, but not a lot. You're hiring. I'm going to ask John Taffer about that. Uh, and Michael Goodwin looks at Jared Kushner's book. And why is it And anybody, by the way, it's a bestseller. I'm sure it's going to be in the Times list, number one or two. But why is it every time someone writes a book, the New York Times got to go out of the way just to wreck it because they just don't like Trump. Uh, Do they ever get tired of writing stupid stuff? Let's get to the big three.
1: Now with the stories you need to know,
3: it's Brian's Big Three.
2: Number three. Most economists who looked at it, said
4: it's not going to increase inflation.
3: Well, if that's what they're thinking, most economists are are wrong. You don't slow the economy down by forgiving debt and giving people another $24 billion to spend.
2: I wouldn't think so. Forgiveness fallout is a blatant effort to buy votes. Joe forgives student loans, now leaving those who paid theirs exasperated. Americans who didn't take one flummoxed or didn't go to college scream foul. We will present all sides. Number two.
4: What I read uh, of the unredacted material makes a strong case against a search warrant. There was no urgency. If they wanted a search warrant, if it was so urgent, they could have gotten it five months ago.
2: It's so baffling. Mar-a-Lago madness. That's Alan Dershowitz. Judges, courts, legal teams, and documents. The drama intensifies as the FBI raid scrambles to show it was all justified. And it looks like a private judge has come ahead and said, maybe we'll get a private master to look at all this stuff and find out what really belongs to Trump. And what is the fishing expedition?
5: Number one.
0: The pollsters do this for the Senate races every cycle. In August, they predict somehow Republicans are going to lose all these races. This is their dying gasp to try to try to make the Senate in play.
2: Momentum lost. That's the narrative from the mass media who are flat out rooting for a block on the so-called red wave. We will examine the reality in the numbers as the midterm uh, push starts in earnest right after Labor Day, and this is the last week, really, of the unofficial summer. And by the way, if you ever miss the show, you got the podcast, com. I don't want you to miss it live, but if you do, there's still hope. Michael Goodwin, there's still hope. There's uh, You go as kick us off positively on Monday. Uh, how are you?
14: <laughs> I'm good, Brian. Thank you.
2: So first off, are you under the belief That the red wave has been somewhat thwarted and that a lot of it has to do with the Dobbs decision on Roe v. Wade kicking power for abortion to the states?
14: I do think there's probably something to that uh, theory. That um, it, it has given Democrats a lifeline, which is what I wrote at the time of the ruling. Uh, that this was something they didn't have. They, they you know, there was no argument to be had. You, there, you, you had a constitutional right to abortion under certain limits, and and not suddenly you didn't. And therefore, there there was a new a new item for the Democrats to run on. Don't forget, I mean, Joe Biden's approval ratings were in the toilet. Uh, they've gotten slightly better since. But at that time, I mean, you had you had the Afghanistan debacle. You, Of course, you had inflation. You had the southern border. And you just had this sense that Democrats couldn't govern. So, look, I, I think that was probably – um, an extreme version of where things really stand uh, between the parties, because when you, at the end, it comes down to individual races, individual candidates, how they perform, the money they have, et cetera, any unforeseen uh, events in the final weeks. So I think that it, it's too early to say that right. <clears throat> Republicans were going to sweep, and too early to say that Democrats have eroded them. That's the way it looks now. But we really won't know until people vote.
2: Yeah, ABC has a poll. Biden had a 45% approval rating. That's stunning to me and cannot be accurate. But uh, white women, this is what they point to, the fact that women are most affected by this. They had 45% approval. uh, 45% vote more for the Dems than 39% approval for the Republicans. It's now 54-41. And what they're doing is kicking uh, uh, kicking the so-called power to the states. I don't think Republicans have made enough of an effort to let that clear. No one's banned anything. Everyone's doing something that should have been happening a long time ago. You're, let your governors, let your legislature decide. Rich Lowry weighed in on this, and he said this should be the message. He's a pro-lifer, obviously, editor of National Review, Cut11.
5: Clearly it's an important change, and I think Republicans have to realize they can't run and hide from this issue. You try to do that's not gonna work. You're gonna get defined in a in a way you're not gonna like. And you can't in most places adopt a maximalist position. So I think they need to do a version of what Rubio did, say, mm-hmm. I want to protect every unborn child. Eventually, I realize I have a lot of work to do, public persuasion on that. In the meantime, here's a limit I support that actually is defensible and has public support, and then point at the other side for being extremists for supporting abortion in every circumstance with federal funding.
2: And he's talking about 15 weeks. He said, I understand I'm pro-life, but not every My neighbor necessarily isn't. How do you feel about that?
14: Well, I think that's a sensible position, but of course, it's hard for any of the rational ideas to hold in the uh, moment of a campaign. I mean, our politics have become so emotional now. Uh, People are so angry at the other side. I mean, the the hatred is really over the top, and I think that's why it's, it's a dangerous time politically, and I'm not sure that the that the ideas of being a rational, holding a rational position that you can explain, uh, particularly on these, on these emotional issues such as abortion, which for, for many women, um, it is, it's an absolute. I mean, they're not thinking in terms of uh, restrictions, what month, there, there is a fear that it will be taken away, whether by the Supreme Court or by the states, Uh, and so I think that these issues are very hard to navigate in sensible ways in the heat of the campaign and then of course I think for Democrats what they are trying to do and have been somewhat successful is link every Republican to Donald Trump and that is I think for for them the clincher uh, as they see it for a lot of people, that if you can link your opponent to Trump in any way, in particular uh, crossover districts or, or uh, states that are pretty evenly split, uh, you can defeat that opponent because Trump is so unpopular among many people, certainly not a majority. but I, So I think there's a lot of... Picking and choosing going on in these districts and in these states that don't quite fit a national model of how we think they should run.
2: Very interesting because Senator Roy Blunt brought up something that the timing is not a coincidence. And he brought up the fact that now all of a sudden this raid happens. It becomes the number one story. And every, or the number two story in everybody's newscast, and we're talking about the special master, and we're talking about the raid and the affidavit, and now you're talking about Trump again. Instead of talking about inflation, instead of talking about uh, oil independence, but it's talking about uh, crime in New York City, which you could argue, and I, I think it's beyond argument, uh, works, uh, you know, the, that's the reality that matters most to the American people.
14: I agree with you, Brian. And, and the Democrats uh, have been very skillful in using Donald Trump as their pinata. Uh, I mean, the, the entire January 6th uh, hearing system was designed to be a midterm argument. Uh, it, was, it was, they were not going to come to any conclusions before this. They wanted, they wanted Trump to be on the 2022 ballot as far as what's on people's minds, and they've, I think, largely succeeded at that. Merrick Garland, which I think uh, that reality adds a special weight to his role in this. And since he has come out, uh, you know, with the raid and and all the leaking that has going gone on, uh, it certainly looks like Merrick Garland is part of the Democrats' fall campaign. And I think that's. Just another thing that, frankly, I find just so disgusting about this win at any cost idea. Because if we cannot trust the FBI, if we cannot trust the Justice Department, if they're always going to play politics. I mean, this thing with Hunter Biden, the FBI going to Facebook and saying, beware of disinformation. You know, what's amazing about that, Brian? The FBI had Hunter Biden's laptop long before the 2020 election. So when they came out and played politics with it. Hey, uh,
2: you want to hear my this is what you're talking about. Mark Zuckerberg came out with this about 90 minutes into his three hour interview with Joe Rogan. Let's listen.
14: Basically, the background here is the FBI. I think basically came to us some some folks on our team. It was like, hey, um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There
8: was the, we we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the twenty sixteen election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of of um, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. I th- Wow.
2: And then he said this came in, and I don't really believe Zuckerberg 100%. He's trying to put it all in the FBI, and this thing popped up. And then we said we squelched the story, put down the story, uh, didn't promote the story. It was retrievable, but it made it tougher. But uh, the Twi- Twitter is the one who banned the story, and the FBI told us to look out for it. And now we know the FBI absolutely knew it was coming, because we know the re- uh, the computer repairman, they gave it to the FBI. So That's we, right. Just That's if, right. so everyone at home understands what you're talking about.
14: So for the FBI to be in the 2020 campaign, if they in any way, and and you're right, Zuckerberg is a little unclear here and he's blaming the FBI, but it would be nice to know what exactly did the FBI say And, and who else did they say it to? Right. And because you have those you have those in, former intelligence officials saying it smacks of Russian disinformation. We haven't seen the laptop, but it smacks of Russian disinformation. I mean, there's a concerted effort. And Joe Biden used used that in the debate to fend off any questions about the laptop.
2: Every and one so- of those IT, those intelligence experts that signed off on it should really be defamed right now and brought out and be forced to defend themselves. From Clapper to Mike Morrell, who I like, uh, to uh, Michael Hayden. All these guys that weighed in and just said, this is classic Russian disinformation. Leon Panetta, classic Russian disinformation. Really? You made no effort to find out if anybody on the other end of that email would say, yeah, this is real. Or Hunter Biden. Would Hunter Biden have taken a call from the CEO of Facebook to say, I need to know if this is real or not, because I'm going to go with this unless you can show me that it's not? Did anybody do that? Nobody.
14: No, because it's so much easier to demonize Donald Trump. I mean, that's what the Democrats have been doing now. It didn't work for them in 2016. Uh, that it did work along with lots of uh, uh, vote changing of voting regulations during the pandemic. It did work for them in 2020. But here we go again. Now it's 2022. And they're up to some of the same tricks because they cannot run on Joe Biden's record. It's just not enough. It's, it's weak. It's bad. There's, everybody knows it. The economy's in trouble. Uh, you know, the, the stock market, it looks like it's ready to deflate entirely. So there's all kinds of issues weighing on this president's record. So what do we do? Look, the shiny thing over here. Look at this. Shiny Donald thing. Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Over but but here. the other
2: thing they're doing is about the sign the Iranian deal. So they flood the market with their oil, keeping it down until the election day, making us all uh, include, especially the Middle East, more in peril. Just last minute, Jared Kushner's book is excellent. I don't care what you think of Trump or his administration or you like Kelly and Conway. You're going to learn a lot by reading this book about what really would happen, but you were—you said, don't be surprised when all these horrible reviews pour in, and they did, correct?
14: Yeah, it, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, they're like mean girls in high school. I mean, these attacks on Kushner, of course, they're just attacks on Trump, but, but they, they take this book and they treat it like they treat Trump. They don't really read it, I don't believe, because you can't read it and not... Take away some understanding of how things worked in the Trump White House. You know, uh, uh, Brian, there were what two million authors who trashed Trump, two million books, or some some ridiculous. I, I'm exaggerating, but there was an endless stream of books that trashed everything Donald Trump said and did. And yet, when we look back now at the Abraham Accords, when we look at the, the trade deals. Between It's the trade deals that's right when we look at the difference that the border wall made in those areas right why is Joe Biden having a wall built around his house if it's good enough for him why isn't good enough for the country. Uh, all those things that Trump did uh, I think have gotten thrown out right January sixth it gives us, it gives us a reason first, it was Ukraine impeachment, then it was january sixth it 's always something to delegitimize right. what he did, but and, in fact, he did some very consequential things and, and Jared Kushner was central to a lot of them and so, they were all
2: destroyed they were they, they attempted to destroy everybody there, from Roger Stone yep. to uh, to Manafort. They took, they uh, for a while, it looked like Jared Kushner was going to be arrested. And we all know and Michael Flynn's career was destroyed. Uh, Michael Cohen's career was destroyed. Credibility shot. And, and now they're going after his CFO of his company because he's with Trump. And, and it's, just, right. it's just, it's un, just, it's unbelievable and it shouldn't be
14: acceptable Ryan, because we Ryan, could be I next. Could just, if I could just quickly throw in one more thing that I think is not gotten enough attention. Jared Kushner in his book, talks about the democrats what he calls a pressure campaign to have the fda delay any announcements about the yes. vaccine until after the election i think this is this to me is an open wound did they really do that it's unbelievable
2: michael <laughs> i have to end there but that is a very important point delayed the vaccine till after the election can you believe that
1: A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
11: Here's what he should do. He wants to get on the side of working people in this country. He should say to all these colleges and universities, if your tuition goes up more than the rate of inflation, then you don't participate in any federal program. No student loans, no Pell grants, and no research grants. Keep costs at the rate of inflation or you're out of the federal pie.
2: That's Chris Christie laying it out on the line on ABC on Sunday. Just saying if you 're going to forgive student loans, it makes no sense to do it for people twenty thousand for Pell grants and and ten thousand for anybody who makes under one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars because it 's not fair to the people that paid the loans of fifty and sixty year olds and by the way, it turns out that only about ten to fifteen percent of those who are going to be affected are Hispanic. Do you want to alienate Hispanic voters even more, known as hard working and uh and, and moral and 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 somebody with a great work ethic, now all of a sudden they don't go to college, or they they don't go to college and they got to pay back these loans from their tax dollars, or they go to college, they pay back the loan, and all of a sudden they feel, look, turn around and everybody else getting their loan paid off. We went into these agreements with our eyes wide open. What he should have done is what Marco Rubio brought up examine the interest rate on it. Examine. Go ahead, take two points off it. Say listen, we're looking to get you guys back on track give you a chance to pay off your loan, but don't alleviate people from that deal. Because how are you supposed to tell the next generation of loan uh, of student loan takers, oh, you're gonna have to pay it back. Those, you know your brother, he doesn't. your sister, she doesn't, but you do. Because you're 18. you're not 22.
1: a radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade.
12: I'm going to put an additional $100,000 in your bar on top of what I've done. But I will only do it if you put in 30000 You write a check for me for $30,000, and I remodel your bar. If you don't commit, then I won't. That's the deal.
3: I'll give you a few minutes
12: to
11: think about it. I've been giving Terry chance after chance for the past two days. Really, the past two years. Now it's D-Day. He needs to step up, and prove
12: himself or i'm not going to rescue this bar
7: and write you a charge, but it won't be any good you
14: i don't have the that. money this guy is so full of shit, it's unbelievable yeah, so. it's over
12: because i don't trust you because you are a slime bucket it's one of the best concept i've ever done and he totally it up
10: <laughs>
2: wow that is some of the reality and part, part of the magic of bar rescue it's real trying to help people, especially coming out of the pandemic. Uh, There's not much margin for error. You've been put through help from from bad politicians and bad policy. And uh, now you got to play the perfect game. And John Taffer's there to help. Uh, But he's also there in the game. He's he's long talked about. Now finally ready for action with Taffer's Tavern opening up in Washington, D.C. It's going to be right next to the Capital One Arena. When is opening day, John Taffer?
12: Oh, next week. I mean, we're there, Brian. You know what's incredible is, the, by the way, hi, nice to talk with you, buddy. Always. Uh, um, so, it's, uh, this restaurant was supposed to open back in November. And uh, that's an example of the supply side issues that we've had just getting it built. Things like an electrical box, Brian, which you should be able to go to a home store and buy eight to 10 weeks to get Uh, panels for lighting, all sorts of things. So getting this baby open is like a victory. It means a lot to us. We're incredibly excited. And and uh, D.C. is a great market. So
2: is this just the beginning? There's going to be more Taffer's Taverns, right?
12: Oh, yes. So so Alpharetta, Georgia, has been open now for almost two years. Uh, uh, D.C. opens, as I said, next week. Boston and Watertown uh, just opened this week. So we now have Boston, D.C., and Atlanta. Tampa is on the horizon and Las Vegas is on the horizon. So we're working hard to build them and find franchisees and partners as quick as we can. And we're pleased we have about 27 restaurants on the books now in various stages of development.
2: So what makes you think you see all the struggles people are having, even when they, they try to do everything right, getting help? You mentioned supply chain, the prices of inflation. What makes you want to get back in the game to this extreme?
12: Well, you know, people still need to go out. And if you look at the markets, Brian, and and I'm a big believer in in cause and consequence, and if you look at markets across the country, some are down 25% in sales to pre-pandemic levels. Some are ahead up to 30% in sales compared to pre-pandemic levels. And it's the consequence from the cause of lockdowns and various political restrictions that were placed on the industry. So in very many markets, success is coming to those who don't necessarily deserve it because the marketplace is so alive. And in other markets, failure is coming to those who do deserve success because of the lockdowns and and the consequences from all the causes, related to the pandemic. So we opened, uh, we needed about 80 employees in Boston, Brian, and about 120 in D.C. And going through the hiring process was very, very interesting in today's labor market. We did staff both restaurants 100%. It took us twice as long as normal. Uh, 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 We didn't interview as many as we would like to come up with the 100 or so for each restaurant. Uh, uh, But we did staff it effectively. But here's what was really interesting. Finding employees was a lot easier than finding management and we're finding that management is just not readily available today i'm not sure if they're looking to be entrepreneurs if everybody's looking for that next opportunity i know they're out there but finding management is very difficult today i did not expect that brian
2: wow that's pretty that is amazing a bit of surprising everywhere i go i always ask how you staff and everybody says and everybody says i need people got a little bit better in the summer biggest question john and before we get into the concept uh, of the Taffer's Tavern which is fascinating is what do you think where did the people go in 2019 where do they go i'm talking about i go to places on the water in in beach towns and they're having trouble and you know how much money you can make a lot of it is off the books cuz you don't declare all the tips you know you know you don't declare yep, all yep. the tips you make so having said that what is your theory
12: i can't understand that look at a, a steakhouse, Brian, where people make a thousand dollars a night as a way they're struggling to find people. And, you know, these are jobs. You don't take them home with you at the end of the night. It's a good income. You have no stress. You go home at the end of the day. Your day is finished. It's frustrating to me. And the other concern is, you know, the restaurant industry has always been a stepping stone for people in life. Young people come into the industry uh, uh, and it's a stepping stone to get to that next level of your career. We're not seeing that, that stepping stone activity much anymore. So it's a powerful change, Brian. And I can't answer where they are. I scratch my head all the time. I'm looking for them. How are they surviving? Uh, 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 But clearly, uh, uh, the future of any industry is going to be based upon human resources today, almost as much as any other resource. Also, policies. Complete policy reviews of human policy reviews. For example, in our corporate office offices in Las Vegas, we just implemented a flexible PTO policy. We don't count PTO days anymore. People need time off. They can have it uh, as long as they work and stay on top of it. Then we, we created a dog-friendly office. And we, we've done all of this research is what does it take to retain employees in today's market? And it's not income, it's all quality of life issues that are driving people. It's a real shift, Brian, from just uh, pre pandemic levels. How much priorities have shifted uh, for people?
2: You no, know, it's kind so of interesting because, you know, it's had Mike Rowan here and we talked to him about his book and people just wanted to work. Like, There's glory in work. And, of course, the push towards trades as opposed to going to college and get your uh, art history degree and wonder what you're going to do with it. Yeah. So it's, it's the same story. But who's willing to work hard? And the quietly quitting thing, uh, they had a, everyone was told to go home. Not everybody, but a lot of people were told to go home, don't work, I'll pay you. And they were frustrated. Then I looked around and said, why am I working so hard? I, the job, I don't really feel fulfilled in that job. Why, you know? And I can stay and my unemployment is uh, is extended and my, my uh, rent is forgiven on hold and my loan is frozen for now. So people said this is quality life. Why should I get involved in that rat race again?
12: I agree. When the financial pressures are lifted, one can do what they want to do much more than what they have to do.
2: So and, let's, let's you know, talk about quiet. your concept with the, with the uh, Taffer's Tavern. You, you, you talk about what does your kitchen look like and why – and you, you were talking about having a camera set up on your kitchen.
12: Yeah. So we we, uh, uh, started this, as you know, four to five years ago. And if we look back, Trump was president. Unemployment was incredibly low. We couldn't find employees. Restaurants couldn't sustain themselves with six, eight people in the kitchen anymore, Brian. The training was too much. We couldn't find the people. Many of the employees we found were new Americans, so there were language barriers in training. It was a nightmare for us. So we said, could we reinvent the kitchen? So we looked at computer technologies, robotic technologies, food preparation technologies. We selected sous vide as a food preparation technique. It's extremely high quality, Michelin five-star. We take a great steak, for example, Brian, we season it, we put it in a special plastic bag. We then take that seasoned steak, put it in a water oven at 135 degrees. That water oven cooks the steak to a perfect medium rare. We then take that steak and we finish it in these special combi ovens that sear the outside flawlessly and finish off the steak. And when when you eat it, it's as delicious as anything you've ever had. But for me, I can do it with less people in a more controlled environment to create greater consistency. So, Brian, there's no stove in our kitchen traditional stove in our kitchen there aren't traditional hoods or fire control systems in our kitchen everything is as high-tech computerized as it can possibly be and the result is really great quality i can't wait till i can get you into the dc restaurant to try it yourself Uh, you wouldn't have it it, yeah
2: as soon as i can get there absolutely or go up to boston when are you going to open up in new york
12: so we're working on new york now that's that's probably a good year year and a half out by the time we get it done but Uh, 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 The final point is, Brian, the kitchen is air conditioned. So when you look at how do I retain kitchen staff? Well, an air conditioned kitchen, nice and cool. That's one step forward. They don't have the depth uh, of prep and all the things that other kitchens have because it's done in our commissary kitchens. So we find that we've created one of the most appealing kitchen jobs in the country. Then because, and, and it's, it's, it's a snowball effect. Since our ticket times are six minutes instead of 12, our servers aren't under pressure. So everybody just seems to have a better energy level and a better dynamic when there's less stress on everyone from a right. food production standpoint. It's interesting to watch that dynamic change for people. But it's fun. And, and the whole point of the restaurant is, is when, custom, when employees are having fun, right. customers do.
2: And, you know, you'll be successful and get Brett Baer to go there. If I get Brett Bear into Taffer's Tavern, that'll immediately guarantee success. Should I work on that?
12: Oh, absolutely work on that. Now, Cavuto, I'm, I'm worried I'm not going to be able to keep away when he's in town. <laughs> on the other
2: hand. Well, the good news is Neil is still a New Yorker or a New Jersey guy. So you're going to have yep. to catch up to him and do good luck with those taxes now. Your opinion, John, on the state of our economy now, people are caught up in two, uh, two consecutive quarters of negative growth. That's not what you deal with. You're, you're in the real economy, dealing with people in the biggest sports bar, in the nicest steakhouse, all needing help. What do you sense is going on in this country?
12: Volatility. People are scared, Brian. Almost everyone you talk to feels that this, there's this tipping point that we're at right now. And in the next 90 days, either we're going to start to away a little better or things are going to get a lot worse. And, and people have no confidence, no certainty, if you will. So a lot of people I know are, are, are getting into that pause mode again, Brian, sort of like when a pandemic started, where people say, you know what, I'm not doing anything right now. I'm not investing, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not over opening anything. I'm going to sit tight right now. And that paralyzation, that pause scares me. That's hurt us a lot over the past few years.
2: But what about I'm interest rates, too? Back into that. How does that affect well, you guys in opening, going into a commercial strip mall, whatever it is, or own building? You've got to take out that loan unless you have a lot of money and you can pay cash for that building or that property. So you're going to go in there and you've got to cut a deal and you're going to sign that lease. But now the interest rates are up.
12: Oh, and, and look at a restaurant business, and people don't realize this. A restaurant costs four times more to build than a retail store because of all the hoods and the equipments and, and, and electrical systems and all of that that a restaurant has. When you have to buy that level of equipment, Brian, and a kitchen costs six seven $700,000, you know, the solution in the past has been to lease the equipment or otherwise finance the equipment. That's so expensive today, that's not a viable option. And that's going to change. It's going to be more expensive again in a couple of weeks. Those are, those are some of the fears of uncertainty that we're facing right now. So, you know, I think there's an uneasiness across right. the country that stems from a lack of confidence. And I don't think people believe in leadership. And if they don't believe in leadership, then they can't believe in, in the results or consequences of leadership.
14: So uh, and I think
12: that's what it stems from.
2: Did you go to college?
12: Yes. University of Denver.
2: Did you have to take out a loan?
12: I did take out a loan. I worked my butt off to pay it off, Brian. I so, was looking this morning if I could pull a second on that fi- on that financing so I could qualify for $10,000 in free money, but I can't get a second 30 years later.
2: Like what's that, your reaction actually. to this?
12: <laughs> I think it's very unfair. You know, I think if you look at our economy and tax programs over the years, there are groups that have been targeted in the past, uh, 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 business groups and things like that for various types of relief. But typically, the, the, those... Uh, types of investments are made because those individuals are investing in the economy. They're investing in equipment. They're investing in the creation of jobs, et cetera. I find this incredibly unfair. Uh, and I find it personally uh, as a way to placate uh, the supporters, uh, uh, his political supporters. And academia is a large supporter of this policy right. and, and the party that drives this policy. And I think, you know, the, the money moves from one pocket to another in the same pair of pants.
2: Uh, yeah. That's interesting. And I'll say this for you personally, there were two colleges I wanted to go to, Syracuse, NYU. When I looked at the numbers, even with the loan, I couldn't afford it. I went somewhere else that I could afford. Yeah. I went to u and I could afford it yeah. and it worked out. So everybody I know dealt with that. Yeah, I got in, but I didn't, get enough, I didn't get enough money. It's, you know, whatever it is, that's the higher end. So if you get into George Washington University and you get $82,000 bill for a middle class family, you're not going to George Washington University. And even if if you take out a bunch of loans, you have to know what you're getting into. Now we're going to the fundamentals of that deal and saying, don't worry about it. What if you're the 17-year-old go, Mom, Dad, don't worry about it. We're going to get it forgiven.
12: Yeah. I think how about the fact that there's $22 billion in college endowments. And Yo, yeah. you think to yourself, college endowments are leveraging hedge funds, right? They're short-selling stocks. They're using every financial tool that they have to grow these endowments. They've created an industry of managing college endowments. And all those endowments were created, Brian, when college loans were started years ago and colleges realized, okay, this is government money. We can up our tuition. So, you know, this has been caused by the whole premise of college loans. College loans increased college tuition to the level that they have $22 billion in endowments and they're charging these obscene prices to go to college every year. I think the solution should be, dare I say, some type of regulation upon college admissions. They shouldn't be able to build endowments of that level on the backs of students who are borrowing money to go there.
2: I hear you. I mean, some of them don't have the Harvard-Yale endowments, the, the Stanfords, I get it. Uh, And other ones, they should be somehow justifying their price. I think with Mitch Daniels, who was former uh, OMB director and governor of Indiana, headed up Purdue. And the first thing he said is, I will not increase tuition. And he cut other places. A lot of it was administration. And he was able to keep that price down and make it possible for for kids from Indiana especially to go – so, we just solve the world's problems, or at least we give the world an opportunity to solve their problems. Uh, let's see if they take yeah. you up on every, all the solutions you offer, John Taffer.
12: I hope so. <laughs> all right.
2: Pick up Power of Conflict, watch Bar Rescue. And then, of course, if you're in Washington, if you're in Boston, uh, if you're in Maryland, go see Taffer's Tavern. And it'll be. Hey, well, an, go ahead.
12: Well, I got you. I got to say, I've been loving One Nation, Brian. I I love the show. You know, I think it's slipped into a great format. I don't miss it every week. Well done.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, John Taffer, an unsolicited compliment. I will pay you later. Brian Kilmeade Show. A
1: radio show of the people for the people. people. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm certainly pro-choice. Yeah, I know what, you are.
11: What I'm saying, oh, I'm more pro-choice than you could imagine. Um, <laughs> I don't think life is always precious. Most people don't think that. What mm-hmm. I'm saying is, you shouldn't say to the other side, you people hate women. They don't hate women. They just think it's murder. And if you think it's murder, then you can't go, well, except for people with a vagina, they can commit murder. I don't think it's murder, but they legitimately do.
7: Huh.
2: Bill Maher, I don't know what, what he tapped into, but just this, this sense of rationale saying, I'm pro-choice, but I understand that people are pro-life what they think. And when you come out and say something like cartoonish that, that Republicans hate women or MAGA Republicans hate women, we shut, you, you shut them off, okay? Just like I think uh, Democrats, for the most part, just don't prioritize defense. Doesn't mean they want us defenseless. Well you try to get people's attention. But the minute you see the President of the United States something as say is something as irresponsible as they don't like women, they've got women mad, they want to take away all your rights, take away all your freedoms, it's just the start, it's just the beginning. That's when even a guy like Bill Maher, who's a liberals liberal, will come out and say, Can you guys knock it off? Even if you even the people that agree with him are ticking him off. And I think you I think you all get that out there. Uh, and as much as he doesn't like Donald Trump. He sees the extreme measures going on right now when the FBI raids his uh, Mar-a-Lago estate. Hey, go to BrianKillme.com. I hope to see you in, at the egg in Albany, September 8th. And then I got two dates: Mississippi, Brandon, Mississippi, in November. And before the, right after that, I'll be in Tulsa, Oklahoma. KRMG fans know that. And December 2nd in Newark, New Jersey. Just go to BrianKillme.com. I'll see you there. Don't move.
1: From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade.
2: Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kill Me Show, 1 866 408 7669. The number to call as we come to you from 48th and 6th in midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, heard around the world, and hopefully, especially in the Ukraine and now, especially in Afghanistan, even though we've gotten out. But it's been a year, just over a year, since we left. And uh, it's just barely almost to the day in which the explosion at Abbey Gate caused 13 Americans their lives. And uh, hundreds of Afghans who were hoping to get out of this country. Bottom of the hour, Brett Baird will be with us. And in a matter of moments, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann will be here. As you know, we conducted a coordinated task force, Pineapple, a group of retired Green Berets, Navy SEALs, diplomats, regular Army and beyond, reporters. Everybody pitched in because the government didn't. Operation Pineapple, the book is now out. The incredible story of a group of Americans who undertook one last mission and honored a promise to Afghanistan. In my words, uh, because the administration didn't. So before we get to Scott, let's get to the big three.
1: Now with the stories you need to know,
3: it's Brian's Big Three.
4: Number three. Most economists who looked at it said it's not going to increase inflation.
3: Well, if that's what they're thinking, most economists are, are wrong. You don't slow the economy down by forgiving debt and giving people another $24 billion to spend.
2: Forgiveness, fallout, a blatant effort to buy votes, in my view. Joe forgives student loans, now leaving those who paid theirs exasperated. Americans who didn't take one flummoxed or didn't go to college, they scream foul. We'll present all sides.
4: Number two. What I read uh, of the unredacted material makes a strong case against a search warrant. There was no urgency. If they wanted a search warrant, if it was so urgent, they could have gotten it five months
2: ago. Marilago madness. Judges, courts, legal, legal teams, and documents will go through it all, including the latest drama that did, uh, unfolded this weekend.
0: Number one. The pollsters do this for the Senate races every cycle. In August, they predict somehow Republicans are going to lose all these races. This is their dying gasp to try, to try to make the Senate in play.
2: Adam Laxalt, who was favored to win in Nevada. Now it's basically a dead heat, could still do it. Momentum lost. That's the narrative from the mass media who are flat out rooting to block the assumed red wave. We'll examine the reality and the numbers as the midterm starts to move forward in earnest. We're about 70 days out. But let's turn to Scott Mann. If you're watching on Fox Nation, you'll probably see him. Scott, welcome.
10: Hey. Thanks, Brian.
2: What were you doing before the pullout of Afghanistan?
10: I was, well... I have a leadership company that I, I teach human connection skills that I learned as a Green Beret, but uh, also we were about to launch our play, Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret, that I wrote uh, a, 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 and performed in to complete my midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were launching it on Amazon Prime. We were getting ready to put it out. We had worked for years on this thing. We had toured the country with it. Uh, as and, a stage play? As a stage play. And uh, the whole idea was to help Americans understand the cost of modern war. And the impact on our families. And so we used veterans to tell the story from the stage. Very, very powerful play. And COVID shut it down. So we turned it into a film and we were getting ready to launch it.
2: And you get ready to launch it. And then all of a sudden you start seeing this Afghanistan deal cut during the Trump years. But to me, especially if to do my research, there's no way it would have unfolded like this. But right, having I said agree. that, I agree. But having said that, when you start realizing that the Afghan army is not going to stand, that, that, um, that Ghani might not be the leader we thought. What are you thinking?
10: I was hearing from Nizam and other friends of mine who Who's were Nizam? Nizam was an Afghan commando and Afghan Special Forces NCO that I'd known since 2010 who was in duress in Afghanistan. He was trying to get out. He was being hunted by the Taliban, receiving text messages, and he started contacting me in early summer saying that things are falling apart. Province after province was falling like dominoes. Um, and he said, I think the country's gonna flip in a month. And he was like two days off. So A lot of us in the SF community, the special ops community, we were already looking at this thing going, it's going to fall. It's going to fall. And we were mobilizing, trying to get involved with our partners.
2: Back up a little bit. When did you get involved in in the armed forces?
10: I joined the Army in 1991. I'd always, I grew up in a little logging town in Mount Outta, Arkansas, and met a Green Beret when I was 14. And when I met that guy, I knew right then that's what I was going to do.
2: So you joined? And I did. When mm-hmm. how soon to you were Special Forces?
10: Uh, it took about five years. It's about a five-year wait. You have to – they don't – If as an officer, I, you have to be a first lieutenant promotable. So I did a tour of uh, duty down in Panama, and then when I was eligible to try out, uh, it was 1995. So it was about a five-year wait and then about an 18-month pipeline to go through that to get your Green Beret.
2: Where were you on
10: 9-11? I was actually at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and 7th Special Forces Group, and on my way to Fort Pickett, Virginia when the towers were hit – we did a you know a U-turn in the medium and went and watched the rest of it at group headquarters, uh, and we all knew as a special forces regiment that our lives had changed forever.
2: And where where did you go?
10: Well, um, first of all, my my ranger buddy Cliff was killed in the Pentagon on nine eleven. He was the, my first friend to lose in the war out of twenty three, and you know it hit me right out of the gate. And um, but seventh group was actually held in strategic reserve for the first couple of years of the war. Fifth group went in first, and third. And then seventh group finally got the nod in 04. So my first deployment into Afghanistan of several was started in oh four oh five.
2: And what was the situation on the ground at that point?
10: At that point, it was you know Iraq was already going on. Right? Iraq was already going on. It was and in, and in, in really was the weight of effort for the United States at that point. The bulk of the you know uh, war assets and 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 material was there. Afghanistan was not a backwater, but it was certainly it – had, it had subsided somewhat. But what we saw when I got there in 04 was you still – the Afghan army was fledgling. It was just getting started. There had not been an Afghan army since like 1978. And so we were working with mostly militias and, and local groups, but the Afghan army was just getting underway. And that's what I found myself doing in '04 was helping them stand up.
2: How did they respond?
10: Initially, they were not a great fighting force at all. In fact, I would say that the general purpose Afghan army and the general purpose police force were a paper tiger. Uh, Morale was terrible. Desertions were terrible. Um, There were a lot of corruption within the officer corps. Uh, It was too big. We tried to build the military. This is where we made a lot of mistakes in Afghanistan across all the administrations. We tried to build an army in our image. We tried to build a Western army. And they were nowhere near capable of that, and they, they couldn't handle the type of requirements that it takes to sustain an army like that. And to give you an example, like they, they require precision fires, platforms, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and those all contractor heavy. We pulled all the contractors out in June with no warning, and the army just collapsed.
2: Right. No, that was crazy. They said if we, if we kept some semblance there, the NATO was willing to stay. Yeah. And they didn't even they had to find out through news reports, not even through a direct contact that we were leaving.
10: Yeah, we burned partnerships on so many levels with this thing. But but, you know, you think about 20 years, really, Brian, starting in 2008, the uh, Afghan or excuse me, the special forces and the special ops community really started putting its effort into building partner capacity with Afghan special operators, commandos, special forces.
2: Here's General Frank McKenzie. uh, He's CENCOM commander, CUP 48.
3: We believe that Kabul would fall if we pull out our troops. Uh, It was just a question of when Kabul would fall. And we have been saying that really since the fall of the year before. That had been a consistent position of Central Command, uh, our subordinates in Afghanistan, that uh, if we leave, they're going to collapse.
10: And we left and they did. What do do you think when you hear that? Well, it aggravates me because I, I know that there were several general officers that gave that warning. You know, they, they made Including it, Miller, who quit rather than m- preside over it. Miller, uh, McKenzie, I think Millie even gave the warnings, you know, candidly. Um, but, but they were not heated at all. And uh, the other thing, though, that kind of bothers me about that whole thing is, and it's just, it's just me personally, is I would love to have seen somebody put their stars on the table as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, you got not? 30, 40 years in, man. What better way to make a stand for the military community rather than, you know, like those kinds of comments that are one year later. I mean, throw it on the table and take a stand and and, and maybe that might just push this back. I don't right. know.
2: Here, here's uh, more from Mackenzie about uh, what went into that decision to stay or go. Cut 47.
5: So in your opinion, was the withdrawal a mistake?
3: I advised against withdrawing. My recommendation and my opinion, and it remains so today, was we had the opportunity to remain in the country with a small force. Uh, I realized the Taliban could very well have chosen to attack us, but I do not believe, based on the intelligence I was reading at the time, uh, that we would have uh, that we would have been forced to add more forces in order to maintain a, a you know a 2,500 force level in Afghanistan. We'd have coupled that force level with an aggressive diplomatic campaign against the Taliban, probably more aggressive than the. Doha agreement and those negotiations. So it would have had to have been a whole of government effort, but it remains my position that we had the opportunity to stay, keep the Afghanistan, uh, the government of Afghanistan running.
2: And when it didn't, he stayed and he presided over the collapse, right? Mackenzie gets a call. Do you want to, do you want to, Kabul is now empty. Do you want to take Kabul or do you want me to from al-Bardar? And al-Bardar was told, we just want the airport. How bad was that decision?
10: It was terrible. I mean, first of all, the 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 way in which this went down. I mean, we had other um, what well, they call them APODs, but they're basically you know they're they're large bases that that could have facilitated a much more deliberate withdrawal. Bagram Air Force Base, Kandahar Air Force Base, um, and and we just gave those up. But then also to just give up Kabul and then try to defend a little postage stamp like like H Kaya um just for a for a non combatant evacuation it was it was a recipe for disaster
2: what did you what was what was the reality on the ground how many guys and how many families were you looking to get out and when did you realize you'd have to do it yourself
10: i i don't think any of us and there were a lot of volunteer efforts underway none of us knew the the true magnitude of the problem what we knew here's what we knew brian We knew that these special operators who we had helped train, the commandos, the special forces, the KKA, these amazing operators were our best bet to keep al-Qaeda and ISIS at bay for the long term. And we were about to just turn them over. So for all of us, it was how do we just keep them alive because surely the government's going to take this over. We'll just hand them over to the government and they'll take it. But they left the state yeah. did the embassy just let they yeah. everyone vacated. Yep, the new embassy was at, actually at HKIA, and I talk about that in the book. It was actually in a former CIA bar inside the uh, inside the airfield. Um, but but our thought was, all right, we're just we know who they are. We know where they are and they trust us. The commandos, the special forces, we're going to keep them safe. We're going to try to move them to certain points on the gate. We'll hand them off to the 82nd, to the Marines, and then surely at some point Special operations will come take them from us, and we can hand them over. But Where it never was the happened. 82nd? Well, the 82nd and the Marines, you know, they were all pulling security ar- around the perimeter.
2: How many troops did they get in there in a matter of weeks?
10: Oh, it was it was a couple thousand, I think, was the right. total. It was a small it was a small contingent. It was enough to hold the airfield, but remember, they were held back. They were not allowed to push beyond the perimeter. So the recovery. Of these high-value at-risk targets. It was up to you guys. It, was up, it was up to them to move themselves. They're guided by these volunteer groups, and uh, it worked. But the, the sad part about it was we were only able to facilitate a fraction of those who really should have been on. I think somewhere around 700. 700 to 1,000.
2: That's amazing when you feel you could do more. Uh, More with Scott Mann in a moment. His book is now out. Operation Pineapple Express, the incredible story of a group of Americans who undertook one last mission and honored a promise in Afghanistan. My words, because the government didn't, because President Biden chose not to.
1: Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
7: We're going to do everything in our power to get all Americans out and our allies out. Does that mean troops will stay beyond August 31st if necessary? It depends on where we are and whether we can get ramp these numbers up to five to 7,000 a day coming out. If that's the case, they'll, be, they'll all be out.
4: Because we've got like 10 to 15,000 Americans in the country right now, right? And are you committed to making sure that the troops stay until every American who wants to be out yes. is out? Yes. How about our Afghan allies? Does the commitment hold for them as well?
7: The commitment holds to get everyone out that, in fact, we can get out and everyone should come out. And that's the objective. That's what we're doing now. That's the path we're on. And I think we'll get to it. So he totally did not tell the truth. He left
2: anyway. And he said, well, I never had a complete list of who was there because they never reported to the embassy when they went to Afghanistan. Scott Mann here author of Operation Pineapple Express who just chronicles what he did putting together a group of veterans to help get our Afghan allies and Americans out of Afghanistan because President Biden wouldn't. Your reaction to that exchange?
10: It's just so hard to listen to um, and it just, I think it just conjures up so many moral injuries that so many in the veteran community feel. I mean, first of all, for our American citizens, it turns out there were a lot more of them behind enemy lines than, than was talked about. But also for our Afghan commandos and the Special Forces, I'll tell you this, Brian, Minister Hasina Safi was the Minister for Women's Affairs. She was the most hunted woman in Afghanistan, right? She was on the run. State Department wouldn't get her out. They would not open the gates for her. This is the Minister for Women's Affairs who was being hunted by the Taliban for standing up for women's rights. She ended up coming through the Pineapple Express, wading through an open sewage canal with her family, and pulled through a four-foot hole in the fence by an 82nd Airborne First Sergeant. That's how she escaped Afghanistan, the most hunted woman in Afghanistan. So where was all of the women's advocacy during that moment? Where are they, they now? The most?
2: Yeah. And where are they now? And the thing is, so you had a State Department, an embassy that was built like a fortress. I wasn't there, but you were. I guess that the embassy is unbelievable in Afghanistan, and they just abandoned it right away. I guess there's a fear of there being another Iran hostage situation. So they left that all that area and their paperwork. They grinded it up. So, do you believe this is the state department the, uh, the, the State Department author this evacuation
10: um, I, I believe that the displacement from the State Department and other buildings like that was was part of the neo There was always this plan to collapse on the the airport right i don 't think that was the right play. I think we should have we should have fought to hold Kabul in a more expansive way because here 's the thing. We could not recover the American citizens. We could not recover the green card holders. We could not recover the at-risk Afghans because we were in a sole defensive posture at the airfield. And we lost momentum. We lost initiative.
2: Right. Uh, And how many of those planes ended up leaving Afghanistan empty?
10: I don't know the number of that. I know there were a lot. And then I also know that, like, you know, it's called the most successful airlift in American history. And here's where I have a problem with that. I believe the U.S. forces that went into H.Kaya and did what they did are to be commended. Sure. Um, they They did yeoman's work. But the vetting... Of the 100,000-plus that came out, only a fraction, like, le- like maybe 1 percent, were the SI special immigration visas, the at-risk Afghans. The rest were not. And so it was – that's where I, I have a real problem with how this went down.
2: Scott Mann here, the, one of the founders of Operation Pineapple Express, you needed third countries to cooperate. You right. started getting planes in to get people out, and you couldn't get the State Department or an ambassador to pick up the phone to be able to, to, to accept these American allies
10: and Americans. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really been frustrating, at least from my vantage point, on the level of support with the, you know not just the State Department, but DOD, um, in terms of getting these at-risk allies out. Now, some groups have had more success than others, um, but what I will tell you is that This private-public partnership that really is what this was. These were private groups working with the government uh, who really did a heavy lift to present responsibly these highly vetted individuals. Uh, To me, the government has not really acknowledged the role of these groups even to this day.
2: And now one year from today, are you surprised so little has been mentioned about this withdrawal?
10: I was talking to Zach, one of our Pineapple uh, conductors, and he said that this anniversary is actually harder than the actual collapse because it just feels like uh, no one has done anything. Seventy three percent of our veterans feel betrayed. Sixty seven percent feel humiliated because of this withdrawal.
2: And they shouldn't be because they fought so brilliantly and adapted to a very complex battlefield. Over the course of 20 years, gave people a chance at a good life. Operation Pineapple Express did great things. Go out and pick up Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann's book. Scott, it's been great talking to you. Thank you, Brian. Brian Kilmuchio.
1: radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
8: The math here is just so stark, George. Even with that victory in the special election, Republicans still need to flip only five Democratic seats this fall. Most of the battleground continues to be Democratic-controlled seats. But what has changed, uh, George, even if most Democrats still don't believe that they'll control the House, some are starting to think that they might be able to minimize the losses, to take some marginal seats off the table, given some of the other dynamics at play right now. And their hope at this point is that even if the Republicans do end up controlling the House, it might be a very narrow majority.
2: Well, we know who that was. That was uh, Rick Klein, off and on with Brett, uh, off and on with Brett Bear, chief political anchor for Fox News. Uh, he was breaking down things for ABC uh, yesterday. Brett Bear joins us now. Brett, do you sense? Are you buying into the home momentum shifting? That was the theme of the Sunday shows. It seems.
9: Yeah, I know, and they're they're really hitting it hard. But listen, the, the basic math hasn't changed. In that, it's really hard to imagine the House it does not change hands with maybe 10, 12, 20 seats uh, in the majority um, for Republicans. Because you just look at the country and the redistricting, you look at the, it's only five seats they have to pick up. And um, just in the current environment, you're going to do that. Now, what they may have stopped uh, for the short term, at least right now, is the bloodbath that was looking like 30, 40 seats at one time, now with a couple of pieces of legislation, with Roe v. Wade overturned, with uh, some some momentum on the left in a few circles, uh, they, they are right to say they may have stopped that that major, major loss.
2: Right. Well, I guess we'll have to see and how you handle it. I thought it was interesting that uh, Rich Lowry over the weekend – who, you know, obviously pro-life, very conservative guy, writes, uh, uh, editor of National Review, said Republicans have to respond to that. Hoping the issue goes away or not having an answer is not good enough. Here's what he said, uh, how they should handle it. Cut 11.
5: Clearly it's an important change. And I think Republicans have to realize they can't run and hide from this issue. You try to do that, it's not going to work. You're going to get defined in a a way you're not going to like. And you can't, in most places, adopt a maximalist position. So I think they need to do a version of what Rubio did, say, mm-hmm. I want to protect every unborn child eventually. I realize I have a lot of work to do, public persuasion on that. In the meantime, here's a limit I support that actually is defensible and has public support, and then point at the other side for being extremists for supporting abortion in every circumstance with federal funding.
2: So that, there's got to be some type of mission. Avoiding it is not going to work. Marco Rubio already said, I'm pro-life. But if my neighbor's not, I have to respect that uh, if I represent them, that their point of view matters, essentially.
9: Yeah. And I, I think that that's an interesting way to do it. I think that that uh, takes away some of the sting. I also think that turning the tables and asking that question about where are the limitations is very politically powerful and very politically damaging to some of those swing state Democrats. Um, you know, you look at Ryan in Ohio, you look at Kelly in Arizona, uh, you start painting or asking questions about what week number are you for putting limitations on abortion? That question gets very sticky because the progressive left doesn't want any limitation. And if you look across the world, even in progressive Europe, uh, most countries are at 15 weeks. Um, so, you know, that that issue does turn, but at least right now, uh, at the beginning of it, it seems like Republicans have been, you know, there's been a shift away from Republicans.
2: A little bit. And they say mostly with white uh, suburban women, uh, they were starting to make gains. But what's interesting is no one's even talking about the Hispanic vote and that massive switch that's taking place. Nobody wants to report that. Um, and that is, uh, I think, that's going to be an overwhelming factor. But Jamie Harrison weighed in on the president's new stance. His stance of basically saying MAGA Republicans are dangerous and semi-fascist. Jamie Harrison's a DNC chair. Do you think he'd look to walk that back? Cut four.
4: Well, it's not about the embracing. It's calling what, what, what it is, what it is. Uh, in the end of the day, we are a country built on freedom. And when you chip away at that, when you see the bullying that takes place in place like Florida with DeSantis, when you see them uh, chip away at privacy rights, when they try to demonize the other, the attacks on transgender kids and their families, the attacks on marriage equality that we are hearing from the Supreme Court. This is not who America is. We're about freedom and rights for all of America's people, not just a select few, but the Republicans are turning a blind eye, this extreme agenda.
2: So they're not backing off from it. He was all over the place on that, but uh...
9: I mean that was was, uh, all. I mean he was going down a bunch of different roads (laughs) there. Uh, But I I, I agree with you that I think that that uh, comment is going to be problematic for the president and the party. It is like basket of deplorables in a way, Hillary Clinton's famous phrase. And you know there are a lot of people, millions and millions of people who. Like Trump policies, they don't necessarily love you know, everything the man does, but they like Trump policies. And to be called semi-fascist or fascist in any way, you can't really be semi-fascist, uh, is, is really quite something. And if you listen to the explanation uh, of a lack of privacy and freedom, I mean, there are conservatives who could argue the exact same is happening on the other side. Uh, with some of the things that are that the administration is trying to do.
2: Uh, amazing. Uh, let's let's uh, pivot to what's going on with the DOJ and President Trump and Mar-a-Lago. Uh, this is what Jonathan Call is reporting. I wonder if you have the same cut 17.
10: Publicly, what they're saying is this is rallying Republicans to Trump's defense. This makes it more likely that he will run for president, more likely that he will win the Republican nomination campaigning against this political action by the FBI and the DOJ. Privately, they are really concerned. And one of the big concerns here is that Trump has nobody defending him. If you look at his legal team, it is comically inept and inexperienced. All of the big names who defended him through the first two impeachments, uh, through the, the Mueller investigation, they are gone. Uh, there is real concern that he needs to bring in a heavy-hitting criminal Can he defense get one? attorney. Well, and he's been asking.
2: Well, the, Jim Trustee and Ed Corcoran, is that the sense you get?
9: No, I don't get that sense. I mean, Jim Trustee has been around the block. Uh, I do think that they had a slow start, <laughs> Uh, some of the filings early on uh, needed, like, uh, filing 101 from the judge, apparently. Um, but I, I don't get that sense. I do I do get the sense that Trump world is not as bullish about the political implications of all of this as it drags on. You know, I think it, there is a powerful side to it about, you know, the overshooting. But I think there are uh, – People looking at it that both sides handled things kind of uh, sloppy, uh, e- either in the initial handling of the documents, um, how they dealt with the uh, National Archives and the back and forth, uh, the negotiations, and then the actual search or raid um You know, I think both sides could be at fault of going over the top. Now, we'll see how it plays out and and what the actual facts turn out to be as we learn more. We didn't learn a lot from that affidavit.
2: So the judge comes out and says, hey, that special master, I might do that, and we might have an announcement by Thursday. So that'll bring somebody that the judge says is neutral and that to look at uh, the documents that they took and the more than the documents, everything they took?
9: Yeah, they'll go through everything and and figure out, you know, what falls under executive privilege. tough part is is that they've already been through these documents by now. And uh, if there was something that was executive privilege that, you know, could affect some future case, uh, they've already looked at it and and kind of already been through it. I, I would think. I mean, I, I don't think that those documents just sat someplace without being examined during this time. But yes, that person, whoever that is, it's likely a judge, is going to um, go through and uh, see, you know, what's the Trump people say that the you know the former president wants documents back. Um, what falls under. NARA, the National Archives, and then make a
2: determination. So, it's painstaking. Yeah, and the Washington Post today, they they just talked about they try to reconstruct, and it's amazing for people that don't want to leak. They certainly get a lot of information. But uh, the Washington Post says basically the National Archives was sparring with the Trump administration while he was in office. And when he left and they took the 15 boxes back, they saw some important stuff in it, and they made the extraordinary move to call the Department of Justice about it. It's almost as if we were talking and all of a sudden you call the cops and the Department of Justice made the move to get involved. And that's why so many in the Trump were like, excuse me, how did this come to this? We're negotiating. I want some of these documents for whatever reason. You want these back for whatever reason. You say there's classified here. Take some back. Lock it up until we can get decided. Next thing you know, there's a nine hour raid. And that 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 move by the archives to take action is really brought this thing in disproportionate attention I don't know if you agree.
9: I do agree, and what we don't know is what was the impetus for that. Was it somebody who was, you know, completely anti-Trump, and they had, you know, um, emotional um, feelings about it, or that they had some evidence that that there was something that was egregious uh, that needed to be dealt with right away, and the Trump people were giving them the Heisman Award stiff arm. And, uh, and they just got frustrated. I mean, I agree. That is the hinge point at which this thing goes from negotiating and getting documents back to this big thing that we're dealing with now.
2: Very curious to see what happens with it. Uh, Brett, you had some good personal family news that you put out on social media. Tell us about it.
9: Yeah. My son, Paul won a a big golf tournament, hurricane tour, uh, kid's tournament. And, uh, I walked with him the first 18 on Saturday and then on Sunday his mom walked and Paul shot 75 last round and won, won the tournament. So that's his first, um, first win. And, uh, so that's good. I had to share it on Instagram.
2: That is awesome. And, and what grade is he in now?
9: He is heading into ninth.
2: He's heading into ninth grade. So he's going to put uh, golf in high school.
9: He is. Yeah. He's trying out for the varsity team. He already plays uh middle school now, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, you know the backstory. I mean, everything we've been through with his health and stuff, it's kind of cool with to his heart to have, um, to have all of this. You know, I've sat in many hospital rooms at Children's National um, uh, thinking about that day, so that's cool. He beat me for the first time last week, too. So that's a sad and happy event. Um,
2: <laughs> well, it shows you got to compete. You got to bring your A game now.
9: I, I got to bring my A game, and he's six too. So I mean, it's like he's taller than me. You already he making excuses? Golf,
2: jeez. <laughs> well, you beat me, but you're taller. I don't think that's exactly. gonna fly. <laughs> Not gonna fly. Yeah. All right, Fred. Good luck. Good luck tonight, and congratulations to Paul. It's awesome.
9: All right, man. We'll All you. right,
2: Brett Baer, uh, when we come back, we'll finish up with your calls, 1-866-408-7669. Um, by the way, I'm going to be on Jesse tonight. I'm going to be hosting uh, Primetime with Jesse Waters, but I'll be myself, and I'll be tossing to Brett tonight. Would I be tossing No, no, he tosses to me. Yes, Okay. goes sorry. to you. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, listen to it. I should have brought this up with Brett. Monday, Tuesday, he tosses to me, but Wednesday, Thursday, I'm part of a group that tosses to him because I'm on the five.
5: So you just— Connected with Brett all yeah, just week not long. Directly. We're going to have to come up with new ways to toss to each other. I
2: know. No, the, the only time I talk to him is either on the air or tossing to him to be on the air. All right. Uh, back in a moment.
1: Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmead. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show.
11: Democrats got everything. how do we go from Obama to this?
1: Yeah. Well, even Obama said it. Like, Obama was famously quoted as saying, you know, Joe has an amazing capacity to <laughs> things up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was a dumb guy when he was okay. I mean, he was, he's never a bright guy. I mean, he's very well-known as a liar like there's there's all these videos of him lying about his education record lying about so many different accomplishments that he's achieved in his life he was always a b- artist and not just a b- artist but like a liar like a flat-out liar i
2: graduated at the top of my class no, no he didn't it's true i mean everything joe rogan said was just true it doesn't mean and aaron Rodgers is his guest right
5: yeah Right you know but here you know he's right think about this, like if you finish say twentieth but when you claim he was to finish... bottom
2: of his class Syracuse, yeah, and he was caught cheating, and he uh we know that he was he was lifting excerpts from a british right uh British politician's speeches when he started running the first time around, and we also know uh too that he makes up half these stories that that he comes up with. It all proved to be incorrect, that story about the train and the conductor. And the guy came up to him, the guy's been dead. And would, if the timeline was played out, the guy wasn't even alive at the time. And he kept repeating the same story. For example, he was arrested protesting Nelson Mandela's of a release. Not that he was released, that he wasn't released. Not true. He was never arrested. Keep saying the same thing over and over again. So People are like, well, what can we do? What can we do is not elect him.
5: That would help. I, I, but what is it is with this politician, remember Hillary Clinton, did she say she was under fire when she uh, at one time getting off the an airplane, yeah. <laughs> and she
2: was with Sinbad,
5: yeah,
2: <laughs> who never turned on him, now, Sinbad the comedian. Yes, they didn't should, they would never fire at Sinbad the comedian. By the way, if you're gonna fire at somebody, Sinbad would be the first hit. He's like six <laughs> nine. You don't hit five foot two and he's not gonna miss. Hit. Yeah, let's find out. There's even more to know than that.
1: More to know
2: few weeks have forced NASA to scrub their launch of a new moon rocket that happened on Fox and Friends today they are all pumped up to do this at eight thirty this morning they said'll if there 's a little bit of a delay or a weather problem it 'll be ten thirty if there 's a mechanical problem it 'll be a week let 's wait a week so they 'll find out what went wrong. I believe it's something with hydrogen. I'll work on it later today after I get ready for primetime with Jesse Waters. Next. Washington Commanders running back Brian Robinson was shot during attempted carjacking. You believe this? You should because it's Washington, D.C. Hey, Coach Ron Rivera tweeted the update last Sunday that he's doing okay, is in good spirits. Quote, I just got done visiting with Brian Rivera, said his coach. He's in good spirits and wanted me to thank everyone for their thoughts and prayers. Before the shooting, Robinson had been expected to split backfield duties in Washington with Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKinsey. Uh, he was taken into the third round of the 2022 draft. Uh, police have identified two male suspects in the shooting, but both remain at large. You have a nice car? I guess you should be willing to give a car, Next. Taylor Swift takes top prize at the MTV Video Music Awards, so finally she wins something. It's been about five minutes since she won. Uh, Swift took home the top prize for best, uh, I guess, who watches videos anymore? Yeah, I mean, like,
8: I, come
0: could,
2: on. I don't. I, I bet you all your children no. have never seen a video on Maybe? MTV.
0: Yeah, It probably hasn't been not. on at least 30 Her
2: announcement came at the end of her, uh, by the way, she announced she has a new album called Midnight's. So I'm sure it'll be a big success. Hope they turn, turn things around for her. Next, Army programs gives poor-performing recruits a second chance. Uh, the program, which began in August, is one way that the Army is hoping to fill the ranks of its struggles with the recruiting goals. So if you fail out the first test in basic, they'll let you do it again. So what are you supposed to do? Military officials who spoke to a condition of anonymity because uh, the totals are preliminary uh, and could change said so the initial recruiting goal was about uh, as much as 60,000 this year. But well, more realistic expectations later put it at 55, with one month to go into uh, officials are predicting they'll come out at 45,000. Unbelievable. Next, Texas Democrat Peter O'Rourke's got a bacteria infection, so he's going to take time off the trail. Also, the ashes of beloved Star Trek actress Nicole Nichols will be launched into space. That's a relief. Rory McElroy wins uh tour championship, uh, the FedEx Cup. Congratulations. Uh, he had to come back to do it. Uh, he went by a stroke at 21 under par uh, against, uh, against Scheffler. Scotty Scheffler uh, comes in second. Congratulations to him. Rory McIlroy now has more FedEx championships in Tiger Woods. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Make sure you watch me on Jesse tonight at 7 Eastern.